0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to these Go to 11. Once again, I'm Nathan Bell, your host. Greg Dutcher sitting across from me. Greg, how are you doing today? I'm doing well.
1: Uh, my update is uh, no loss this week because it was a bye week. So, <laughs> hey, I'll take that. I no news had, is good news. I right? wish we had bye weeks. <laughs> bye weeks every week now. Uh, stress-free and relaxing, so doing great.
0: Uh, Steve Hartland joining us again. Steve, how are you today? Very well, thanks. Happy to be here great great and
1: i I have to say that steve's got to be getting sick of us man you've been putting in some real time on these podcasts well i'm
0: not
2: scheduled again for what a month or something i think it is about a month all right so So, i'll recover audience
1: you just just get your fix now
2: i'm starting to have bad dreams with greg dutcher appearing
1: (laughs) (laughs) you would not be the first about
0: this
1: (laughs) will not be the first or the last
0: uh and dr john frame joining us once again dr frame how are you today
3: real good glad to be with you and with your listeners
0: well thank you very much for joining us today um we are uh going to be discussing your book a history of western philosophy and theology um it is a massive book um and and i just want to start off and ask you how long did it take you to complete this
3: work yes his life yeah well i've been teaching philosophy for you know 40 50 years Uh, now, on various uh, courses and under various titles, and uh, it—I uh, started teaching the uh, history of philosophy and Christian thought course at the Reformed Theological Seminary maybe five, six years ago. And uh, at that point, I thought it would be good for me to take my lecture material and try to expand it and turn it into a uh, book. And so I did, and. I guess uh, the whole project took about six years or so, and uh, now I'm happy to say that the uh, and has brought, brought it out in published form.
1: Wow. Uh, and I, I wanted to ask you, Dr. Frame, did this might be a uh, difficult question if another author hears of this, but what book uh, were you using in your courses? Did you have a standard one-volume tome? Because uh, obviously that's what this new book you've written is. Is, is there a book that yours is in essence – uh, now going to uh, potentially replace?
3: Well, I began teaching a course uh, through a lecture method, and uh, I asked the students to uh, read uh, uh, various primary sources. Uh, I used a book by Diogenes Allen, which uh, includes uh, material from, from Plato and from uh, Augustine and from others that are relevant to theology, and uh, Uh, Besides that, I I had the students read articles on different uh, philosophical subjects, but uh, uh, there was no single textbook. Uh, I have, uh, of course, benefited from a lot of single textbook uh, histories of philosophy, but uh, uh, eventually I was able to reduce my lectures to uh, uh, lecture outlines, and then the I expanded those to something that I kept online, and the uh, students used that for a while. Uh, but now I'm real happy to have it all uh, reduced down to the dimensions of a regular book. Excellent,
1: excellent. And, and you mentioned the, uh, uh, the lectures uh, to which they're tied. That was a unique feature in the, in the book, is that you actually have an index of uh, iTunes lectures that the reader can go to, if they want to hear uh, you teach on this subject. Is that right?
3: That's right. Uh, We uh, kept that uh, as part of our RTS method of uh, teaching, that the uh, online or distance ed lectures are kept on iTunes, and uh, we wanted to give an opportunity for uh, readers of the book to uh, get some of the material orally if if they're oral learners. (laughs)
1: Yes. Yes. So for all you auditory learners, Steve, I'm sorry. I looked for you. There's not a picture book format. I oh. I, I looked hard, but Doctor Frame has not yet produced that. Um, uh, but <laughs> no, there that, are pictures. There are yeah, that's true. that's true. I'll look for
2: those pages. Yeah.
1: <laughs> there are there are a number of pictures and diagrams yeah. that are. Are there very, any, very Are
2: there any Harleys in there? I didn't see
1: any Harleys, Doctor Frame. Uh, I, I, make sure in the second edition you have at least one motorcycle somewhere in there. Then. They have a row break.
3: of uh, jelly jars in there. Oh, I see. <laughs> <laughs> that's
1: see, that's what drew me. <laughs> <laughs> Very, good. Very good. But no, just for those of you uh, listening in today, obviously, if you're a podcast listener, you are in a category of people that really do enjoy learning about new things through the auditory medium. And mm-hmm. I thought that was a great feature in this book. Um, You know, to read it and say, "Man, I'd like to hear this." Sometimes it Mm -hmm. sticks better. Mm -hmm. You get a different nuance, and uh, that was that was a wonderful index in there that you can always find the lecture related to the uh, to the chapter.
0: Now, uh, Doctor Frank, I. I remember when I first picked up Mere Christianity, there's a little um, section in the beginning where C.S. Lewis talks about how difficult it was to transfer um, his his spoken notes because Mere Christianity was a series of radio programs sure. done, and he said it was more difficult to take that and transfer it into, transfer it into the written form. There were different things um, that he had to do. Did you find a similar experience in writing this as well?
3: Well, uh, to some extent, yes, but... Uh, the uh, book is not just a transcript of the uh, oral lectures. Uh, there's a lot more research uh, uh, in the book. I, I, it, it was an independent project in a way, although it uh, aims to communicate basically the same, uh, same ideas. Hmm.
0: Um, and just out of curiosity... What would you say? Who would you say the target audience is for this book? I mean, do you think it's primarily for the student? Do you think um, the, the the lay Christian would be able to pick this up and and get into it? Um, what are your thoughts on that?
3: Well, I basically have in mind uh, people who are teaching or taking courses on the history of philosophy, either in college or uh, in seminary, of course, it's set up in 13 chapters with uh, uh, discussion questions at the end of each chapter and so on, so there's a kind of uh, textbook feel about it, but I think anybody, uh, you know, I kept thinking of myself when I was in uh, college and uh, studying under very secular teachers, non-Christian teachers, and the I had various problems about uh, how the uh, things I was learning in college uh, interfaced with my Christian faith, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm, I'm always thinking about that, you know. I'm thinking uh, when I'm talking about Kant or talking about Hegel, uh, uh, how does that relate to somebody who's a, a Christian and trying to uh, uh, understand things uh, uh, in a in a biblical way?
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, I'm going to pass this over to um, Steve now because I know there there are a few questions there that he has for you about it. Uh, once again, we're talking about a history of Western philosophy and theology by uh, Dr. John Frame. So, Steve, um, go ahead and, and take it away for a little bit there. I, I
2: think I'll ask first. I'm, I'm I'm looking at the volume; it's sitting here in front of me. It's a big book. That is a big. book. <laughs> it's a
1: workout. Thing. My bicep is twice as large. Uh, <laughs> that's another benefit yeah, of buying this book. Yeah, that didn't take
2: much. <laughs> I don't know why it occurred to me. I just think. And you will not, find, for the heroes, you will not likely find this volume in the little stand in the grocery store next to the paperbacks on the rapture, you know, the, the rapture novels. All right? Yes,
1: or the promises for job
2: success. <laughs> that one yes. either. Uh-huh. Yes. yes. So um, one of the things that, that you cover in the book are are the benefits of studying philosophy. And I've got a little list of them here in front of me, but I wonder if you might just like to discuss that topic uh, off the top of your head, what are some of the benefits for the students who might buy this volume and study the history of Western philosophy and theology?
3: Well, I'm not sure I can remember the list of benefits. <laughs> <laughs> uh, sure. but, well, I could but, help you out, we'll, but whatever got you got right uh, here. <laughs> uh, philosophy is uh, uh, trying to uh, explain, articulate, and defend a world view. Everybody has some idea of how. The, World fits together, what the general shape of it is. And for Christians, of course, uh, our worldview is uh, that God is uh, uh, the creator of all things, that He rules above all things, and that He governs everything according to His perfect uh, plan. And uh, that's, uh, but uh, if you're not a Christian, if you're uh, rejecting uh, the teaching of the Bible, then you may have a very different worldview, such as a worldview in which uh, uh, there there is uh, uh, everything is one, uh, everything is uh, inseparable from everything else, or, or a worldview in which uh, uh, there's nothing except tiny little material uh, bits of stuff that uh, are rolling around in space and time. Uh, so, uh, you know, if you're going to, uh, if you have any interest in these big questions and you're interested in defending your own worldview or explaining it to somebody else, it certainly can help uh, if you expose yourself to uh, uh, the philosophers uh, uh, down through the years, uh, how they uh Explained and defended their worldviews, and you can get good examples of uh, uh, how Christians have done it too in the past. So uh, there are a lot of benefits, I think, from uh, studying philosophy. Philosophy and theology are very closely uh, related with one another. Uh, uh, if a Christian understands uh, the theology of Scripture, uh, uh, that that is his philosophy. <laughs> Mm. Uh, as I understand it.
2: Yes, very very good. Um, uh, would this be a, a good volume then for an intelligent high school graduate who's headed off to a secular university? Mm. Would this help ground them and prepare them for some of what's going to come their way when they get to school?
3: Yes, I think so. Uh, if, uh, uh, I think that's a special value that it has because uh, if you're going off to uh, – a typical secular uh, college or university, you're going to get uh, uh, probably a history of philosophy course uh, along the line, or you're going to get uh, a, a course in uh, biology or history or politics, which uh, assumes uh, uh, a non-Christian philosophy of some kind. And uh, uh, it's good to be prepared for that. It's good to understand uh, uh, how the biblical Worldview compares with that of how it differs.
2: I'm reminded of a pastor friend of mine. He lives in Jersey, and his oldest son was going off to Rutgers University. <laughs> And he uh, insisted that the summer before going to Rutgers, the son read Nancy Piercy's Total Truth, and they they discussed it together. I'm sure you're familiar with that book, are you, Doctor Frame? Oh yes, yes, it's a good book. So I, I think that would be step one. Yours would be step ten, maybe. Right, yeah. right, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yes, uh-huh.
1: yes, but I, I mean, uh, Steve, I would say I remember taking those courses like when I was at Towson. Uh, you know, I think we had to take, a, you know, I don't know. Philosophy one hundred and one, history of philosophy, or something like that. But I think you're right too. In the science courses, the biology, sometimes depending on how aggressive yeah. and uh, imaginative your professor is, that can get into to you know uh, you know freshman comp yeah. uh, where these things get in there. And there were all sorts of ideas I heard, such as, um, and I'm kind of stealing your thunder, Steve, but I'll bounce it back. Don't in mind. Me. Just just had to jump in. I've I was taught things, Doctor Frame, like. Um, you know the christian church may have detested philosophy or in certain uh, time periods it did yet some of our most foundational truths this is what i was taught are nothing more than philosophical abstractions such as the trinity uh since they mm-hmm. use terms like substance and you know you know uh, all, all those terms that tie into those trinitarian debates and conversations and just curious um what would you say about that? I actually know since I read that section, but uh, for our audience, <laughs> how would you explain that? That's a, As a young 18-year-old, 19-year-old kid, and all of a sudden you've been told, wow, the th- stuff I learned in my Sunday school or from my pastor or youth pastor or from my parents, this is just philosophical stuff uh, that's been repackaged <laughs> and it's not something that came from heaven. I would love to hear the John Frame response to that.
3: Well, the uh, biblical doctrine of the Trinity, just to use one example, uh, uh, tells us that there's one God, and there are three persons in that one God, and of course that uh, creates a lot of questions for people, and if people are trying to attack uh, the gospel, uh, they may say, well, what do you mean, one God and three gods? and You can't make up your mind about that. You're believing a logical contradiction and so on. Well, the Church uh, worked through that in the early centuries, uh, the first through the fourth century, and they uh, came to the conclusion that on the basis of Scripture, uh, there is one God, uh, but uh, He is uh, in three persons. Now, the word person uh, comes out of the philosophical discussion, and uh, the uh, questions came in a philosophical way, so they came up with a philosophical answer. They, they said that God is one substance, God is three persons, and uh, of course the uh, 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 there, there's no contradiction there, because uh, Uh, God is one in one respect, and he is three in a different respect, and uh, uh, so that's a perfectly consistent position to have. That's uh, like saying that a a clover is uh, one plant but three leaves, you know, and uh, uh, it's one in one sense but three in another sense, and there's a lot more to be said about it, of course, but uh, that's where you begin, uh, especially if you're talking to somebody who's trying to attack the christian faith and doesn't understand the bible very well yes very
1: good
2: may i ask one more before oh, we pass well, please, on to please. somebody else um i think in the book you discuss some possible limits of the use of reason in the defense of a christian world view um what would be some of those limits of reason in the defense of a christian world view
3: Well, the main limit of reason is that uh, our reason is not uh, independent uh, of God. God has uh, made us uh, so that we can use reason to understand the world that he has made and to understand God himself as well. Uh, But that means that our reason is uh, dependent on him, that our reason uh, must... uh, begin with the revelation that He's given to us of Himself. And so uh, uh, reason is not autonomous, as I say in the book. It's not uh, something that we uh, come up with all uh, on our own and try to uh, come to conclusions without any help from outside ourselves. Uh, Reason is a response uh, to what God has revealed about Himself and about the world. Hmm. Very helpful.
1: Yes, yes. I uh, will stay on this uh, but move into a slightly new territory where this all connects, I think, uh, Dr. Frame. Personally, about 10 or 15 years ago, I was uh, talking to some very good friends that were influenced by uh, Gregory Boyd, um, you know, uh, Open View Theism. Uh, and so you are one of the uh, first books I read. I remember a few books came out. Yeah. You saw it was no other God. Yes. I believe was the title. Uh, right. And thank you for that labor of love, Doctor Frame. Yes. It was very helpful to me. I think you were uniquely qualified to write it. I, there were so many grounds that people advance open theism. Um, so in a moment, uh, I'm gonna actually. Why don't I do this as a two parter? Could you, for the benefit of our audience? Uh, summarize generally what open view theism is, Dr. Frame?
3: Well, open theism is the idea that uh, God uh, does not completely know the future. That uh, Because God made uh, creatures with free will, uh, he cannot predict what they're going to do tomorrow. He can't uh, predict what their choices will be. And so uh, God is ignorant of uh, many events that presuppose human free choices. And so uh, uh, God is uh, unable to uh, uh, prevent uh, certain evil events from happening. Uh, God is sort of uh, fighting for the sake of goodness, but uh, uh, he can't guarantee that uh, he will always come out on top and uh, we can't always uh, uh, trust that he will that what he says to us will uh, be uh, uh, true. He does make mistakes. So not not all the open theists say that, but some of them did. Yes, uh, that God does make mistakes, and uh, so therefore uh, we can't uh, wholly trust him. And I I just think that's uh, very unbiblical.
1: Yes, yes, and uh, you uh, put that very very clearly, Dr. Raymond brings me my own unique kind of PTSD because I, uh, about 15 years ago, was in many conversations with some very dear friends that uh, were very influenced by this. And I remember them saying things to me like, Greg, if you you bought a ham sandwich today for lunch and God knew from the beginning of time you were going to buy a ham sandwich, then you're not really free. Um, (laughs) My answer was, I I don't really care. I just wanted a ham sandwich. But, you know, I I try to make light of this. But they would argue these things. One of their main grounds of contention was that my traditionalism, conservative, uh, conservative nature, uh, you know, sort of a reformed evangelicalism, was really a byproduct of philosophy. Uh, more you know that the, the ideas of God as this fixed, stable being that knows all things is more akin to Aristotle's unmoved mover. Uh, than it is to the God that's actually in Scripture. So their argument was that philosophy hijacked the story of the Bible and the character of God. And I remember thinking, man, I wish I studied some philosophy mm-hmm. uh, other than the one required course I had to take as, uh, as an English undergrad. And um, I remember when your book came out, because I think Dr. Carson wrote one. There were several. I remember knowing that you had such a philosophical uh, background that that was going to be very interesting and i'm just wondering if you could comment on the relationship between philosophy and the character of god uh... in scripture and how that uh... directly ties into the open theism controversy
3: well scripture teaches that uh... god uh... is god knows all things that is the past the present uh... and the future he knows the end from the beginning As one of the prophet says. he's uh, uh, He uh, tells uh, uh, Noah, for example, that uh, uh, his uh, three sons are going to uh, grow up and various things are going to happen to them, and then uh, uh, three uh, hundreds of years later uh, various things will happen uh, to their families, to their descendants. The same thing with uh, with uh, Abraham, uh, uh, his sons uh, uh, are going to uh, uh, move into various parts of the world, and uh, the sons of Shem, of course, will be the Israelites, and the uh, uh, the Israelites will uh, uh, in, in, engage uh, uh, with the uh, descendants of uh, uh, of Ham and the descendants of Canaan, and so. Uh, 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 These are prophecies that go uh, hundreds, thousands of years into the future. Uh, In Deuteronomy, the definition of a uh, philosopher—I'm sorry, the definition of a prophet is that a prophet has God's words uh, in his mouth. And the test of a prophet is that uh, uh, if the prophet says something is going to happen and it doesn't happen— Uh, then he's a false prophet, and he should be stoned. So all of this assumes that the prophet knows somebody uh, who has a perfect knowledge of the future, a a knowledge which cannot be mistaken. Now, this is what the Bible teaches about God. It's not uh, uh, derived from philosophy. Uh, It's uh, uh, derived uh, simply from what the Bible says, uh, Christians have put it into philosophical language because uh, uh, the objections have come out of philosophy. But uh, the teaching is not a philosophical teaching; it's uh, something that God has revealed.
1: Yes, yes, very good. I love Dr. Frame how uh, you appealed to Scripture uh, right from the start. That that was one of the most frustrating things to me in conversations is it, it seemed, and I'm being a little anecdotal, that friends of mine that were influenced by this camp, when you would talk scripture, would immediately pull out philosophical critiques. Uh, you know, um, and, and I just would ask, doesn't the Bible plainly say that God knows the future? And he declares the end from the beginning and the bird of prey from the east and all that. It just seems so clear that it almost seems that um, when you... Embrace a philosophy uh, it can um, it sort of put the cart before the horse and that 's what I was finding and i I just think your book i I should be careful we 're talking about uh dr frame 's most recent book uh, on a history of Western philosophy and Christian thought, but i 'm mentioning dr frame 's older book, no other God, so just a little call out to our 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 listeners
2: uh, i 'd like to move into the area of early Christian philosophy. So there's Justin Martyr and Irenaeus Tertullian, Origen, Athanasius, Augustine, uh, and I love Augustine's uh, Confessions. Yes. Mm. Oh, man, that is sublime. That's good stuff. But uh, Dr. Frame, in your opinion, out of those or even others you might want to uh, add to that list, who who's the best? That is, uh, who might be closer to what we understand as Reformed evangelical theology today?
3: Well, certainly Augustine is the closest one, because, uh, uh, for one thing, Augustine is the latest of that group, and uh, so uh, there's been a lot of uh, discussion, uh, a lot of study, uh, uh, a lot of prayer that's gone on from the time of Justin Martyr in the 2nd century to the time of Augustine in the the 4th and 5th centuries, and... uh, during that time, they've learned a lot. They've learned a lot about the Scriptures, and so, in general, I think that uh, Augustine is the most adequate uh, of those as a teacher and as a student of Scripture, and I think we can learn more from uh, uh, Augustine than we can learn from some of the other uh, Church Fathers. But, uh, you know, the early Church Fathers are very... uh, interesting and helpful it helps to remind yourself that uh, these men were trying to teach the scriptures trying to teach some very complicated ideas and trying to interact with uh, uh, secular philosophers uh, during a time of persecution, during a time when the Christian faith was not dominant uh, in the world and uh, I think they made some mistakes but uh, Man, I could not have done any better than they mm-hmm. if yes. I'd been alive during that time, uh, and they laid uh, in general a pretty good foundation for our later uh, philosophical and theological uh, thoughts. Uh, so uh, I, I I love to read uh, Justin Martyr and Tertullian. Tertullian is a tremendously uh, fascinating uh, figure. I'm I'm less uh, impressed with the uh, Clement of Alexandria. I love Athanasius, and uh, so it goes.
2: Now, uh, back to Augustine for a moment then. Uh, I have heard it said that, uh, that Augustine says enough things in a way uh, that sound Romish, Roman, that the Romish church claims him as, as their own, and enough things that sound evangelical that the evangelical church claims him as their own. Would you speak to that? Do you agree with that or disagree? Why?
3: Well, it's uh, it's a little bit anachronistic to ask whether uh, Augustine was Protestant or Roman Catholic <laughs> because, of course, the uh, arguments uh, that are typically associated with Protestant-Catholic debates uh, didn't get going until uh, the 16th century, and that was uh, nearly a thousand years after Augustine, but uh, in some areas, Augustine sounds very Protestant. He's a great uh, theologian of grace, mm-hmm. He, uh, especially in his er- uh, later writings where he was opposing the Pelagians. The Pelagians were very uh, strong advocates of uh, free will, and almost uh, the same as the open theist sense of free will. And uh, uh, Augustine, uh, when he saw the writings of Pelagius, he uh, uh, decided that this just was not biblical and that uh, it contradicted the central emphasis of Scripture, that uh, salvation comes by the grace of God and uh, apart from our works. So uh, in that respect, uh, Augustine sounds very much like Luther, but uh, uh, you don't find in Augustine the great wrestling over over justification that yes. you find in Luther, and uh, you find more of a uh, at points uh, a kind of sacramentalism that's more uh, common uh, among Roman Catholics than among uh, Protestants. Mm, good,
1: interesting, and I think you've answered a a real concern I've had, Doctor Frame. I remember learning about the early Church Fathers in seminary, and I just want to say, all these years later, you've helped me. Just with your answer now, I was discouraged because my faith was shaken a little bit when I'm reading Irenaeus, uh, Ignatius, Origen. I'm like, these guys don't sound like John Piper and and, and the guys I like to read and study. <laughs> they, they at times sounded like they were saying things almost way way out of the camp. And one of my concerns, and I wish I had expressed it in seminary, but I felt like I was being a bad guy by doing it, was. Why was there this is how I perceived it uh at first, such a drift. These guys were the closest to um, you know, the original twelve and you know the, the, the death of John, you know, depending on where you date that. I know, say he died in the nineties, which is a, a common thought, um, you know, and his connection to Polycarp and these guys, why are these guys so spurious on their theology? And it really concerned me because I thought the closer to the first century apostolic church, the better they would be. But if I'm hearing you rightly, you're saying these are men that are trying to teach in many ways apologetically from the standpoint of defending the faith uh, while they're under attack and the gospel is going into the world and the church is being persecuted. Uh, are you thinking that's what would account for some of the, what I once perceived a, a, as a drift?
3: Yes, well, uh, I do think there's a drift. I think the uh, uh, there's a vast uh, difference between the last books of the New Testament and the early books uh, after the New Testament, like the letter of Clement, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Clement's letter to Rome has uh, some works righteousness in it. He doesn't seem to have completely understood Paul's gospel of grace, even though he uh, is writing to the same church that received 1 uh, Corinthians. So the uh, what happens, uh, and, and I, I think you have to be careful of this, you know, some, some people, some Christians get uh, really excited about going back to the church fathers because they think that anyone Uh, so ancient as the Church Fathers must uh, have uh, extraordinary insight they must be right about almost everything and uh, that's not true you know when you move from from the writings of of Paul and John to the writings of Clement there's a great uh, gap there and to me that's a proof of the inspiration of Scripture you know Uh, Paul and John are inspired writers and Clement is not, and uh, the difference is that uh, after the New Testament is complete, the next generation of Christians is uh, uh, starting a a brand new task. They're starting to do something different, namely, uh, their job is to take the writings of Paul and John and Luke and and, uh, everybody and try to understand them, try to apply them uh, and that's that's a hard job, that's a job that, uh, you know, we still haven't completed after thousands of years, and uh, so, uh, and, and I, again, I think the Church Fathers did pretty well for the time in which they lived, and the, the resources that they had, they didn't know Greek and Hebrew as well as we do, they didn't understand the uh, first century Judaism as well as we do, they didn't uh, have the theology of Augustine and Calvin and uh, and Warfield and everybody to help them along. They uh, mm-hmm. but yes. they did the best they could do, and uh, I, I give them credit for that.
1: Yes, yes. And I, uh, in, in that same vein, are you sometimes, Doctor, amazed at how the church, frankly, got the Trinity right? So, what, when there was such massive diversity of opinion um you know on on that subject, I actually have always been encouraged uh that the Holy Spirit was guiding the church because our obviously our checkpoint is scripture and uh I know they used as you said you know hypostatic union and the the terms available to them in their day and the in the philosophical vernacular but it um uh, you know i I was just curious your thoughts on that do you as you look at the heresies they were up against are you somewhat amazed about how how much clarity they brought to the subject of the bible's teaching on the nature of god
3: yes well the church didn't arrive at its uh final uh formulations of the doctrine of the trinity until uh the uh council of nicaea in the fourth century and uh, later the council of constantinople so it took them uh maybe three uh, three hundred years or so to arrive at a formulation that uh, satisfied everybody so that we can stand up in church and and say that uh, uh, God is uh, uh, one and uh, speaking of uh three persons as uh, as persons uh, within his being uh justin Martyr... Uh, Saw the Trinity uh, in a kind of subordinationist way. Mm-hmm. He saw the the, the uh, Son and the Holy Spirit as uh, something lesser than the Father, and of course that would be considered heresy today. That would be considered heresy after the uh, fourth uh, century, but. Uh, uh, you know, it just took a long time for this uh, study to uh, be carried out, and uh, Justin did the best he could at the beginning of the process, and and then other people like Tertullian and uh, and uh, Athanasius and Augustine uh, uh, worked through it and uh, uh, polished it and. Uh, until we can say, today, one God, three persons, and uh, we think we know what we're talking about. Yes. But it took the Church a long time to uh, arrive at uh, uh, something that was really uh, considered satisfactory for all Christians.
2: Good. Um, You've mentioned Athanasius a few times here, and I I wonder if you could comment on uh, his importance in defining and correctly defining the doctrine of the Trinity. I've read that uh, he played quite a role at one of the councils, and I don't remember which it was, that he was actually there as just a little scribe, but things weren't going very good for the doctrine of the Trinity. And he stood up, and there's that famous phrase. It was Athanasius Contramundum, Athanasius against the world. Mm. Uh, somebody, somebody said to him partway through the conference, "You know, Athanasius, the world is against you. And he said, then Athanasius is, is against the world. Uh, did that yeah. actually happen? Can you confirm that?
3: Oh, that's great. Uh, yeah, Athanasius was one of my heroes. I, I don't know uh, for sure whether that phrase uh, comes from him directly, but uh, that's that's his spirit. That's the way he stood out. He was uh, an assistant to the uh, Bishop of Alexandria uh, during the Nicene Council, which was about three twenty-five. I may be getting some dates wrong here, but. Uh, Very shortly after that, the bishop died, and they appointed uh, Athanasius to be the bishop in his place. And uh, he carried on a heroic mission, because uh, after the Nicene uh, Council uh, came up with what we call the Nicene Creed today, it was a little different back then, uh, there was a lot of opposition, and much of the opposition came from powerful places. The uh, Emperor Constantine uh, gave his kingdom over to his two sons, and they were uh, not orthodox in their theology. They were very strongly uh, for the Arian side, and uh, there were all kinds of challenges. Uh, Athanasius, I'm I'm told, was deposed uh, from his position as the bishop, and uh, uh, there are stories of him uh, uh, running through the desert to escape people who were trying to kill him and, uh, mm. and so on. But in the meantime, he, he wrote some, some essays that were just, uh, uh, wonderful, uh, uh, essays, uh, for us to read today. Actually, uh, I think that, uh, he's one of the saints that needs to be honored more than we, uh, usually, uh, honor him. Uh, he died around, uh, 373 I think and we it was just God's providence that uh, kept this doctrine alive Uh, even with uh, Athanasius gone the uh, uh, doctrine continued to uh, uh, reflect the heart of the church and uh, there was another council called the Council of Constantinople in 381 that uh, uh, reviewed the Nicene Creed and, uh, reaffirmed it and, uh, revised it in some measure, and this is the Nicene Creed that we recite, uh, in our churches today, and it just, as I look at that history, it just seems to me to be miraculous that, uh, uh Athanasius was able to, uh, hold the, uh, hold that doctrine fast, uh, despite all the attempts to, uh, Uh, destroy it, and that uh, even after his death, the Lord was able to uh, make that doctrine prevail.
2: Yes. Uh, One more question, if I may, on uh, the early church fathers, and it relates to John Calvin. Um, Probably uh, my my favorite volume in my library would be uh, Augustine's Confessions. And then my second favorite would be a two-volume set of John Calvin's Institutes, the one edited by Ford Lewis Battles. Got to get the right one there. That's right. Uh, That's right. uh, And I I believe Calvin, one of the amazing things about Calvin is that he didn't have a lot of shoulders to stand on. Uh, He stood on his own two feet and got so many things right. I mean, he got some things wrong, too, but he got so many things right. But didn't he he draw a good bit from some of these early church fathers, maybe – from augustine in particular would you comment on that please
3: oh yes well he loved augustine and he loved uh athanasius he loved uh, the church fathers generally he had a good balanced perspective on the church fathers he he wasn't uh he didn't uh uh you know treat them as god the way some uh theologians and scholars did but uh he learned uh from them and uh He was able to, you know, when people came up to Calvin and they said, well, what's this uh, new doctrine you're teaching, uh, justification by grace through faith? And so on, Calvin was able to say that uh, what the Reformers uh, taught was uh, very uh, much uh, in line with what the Church Fathers taught and what the Church in general has taught for for many uh, hundreds of years.
2: Good.
1: Interesting. I uh, that will pivot into the Reformation. I know a lot of our listeners, Doctor Frame, are are probably most curious about that. But I I love what we've talked about so far in trying to summarize this massive volume you've written, which is itself a summary of a massive period of history. Uh, you know, we we it's good for us to get you know a little bit of uh, exposure to Athanasius and some of these guys that often kind of fall off the radar. But the Reformation, obviously, a lot of people are interested in, particularly modern Reformed evangelicals. Uh, you say something interesting in your section here that if, if, if I read it properly, that none of the Reformers really considered themselves philosophers, but you make the argument but their contributions are incredibly philosophically important. Could you, could you unpack that a little bit for us?
3: yes well the uh, uh reformers luther and calvin and the others uh, uh were mainly students of the bible and uh, they didn't uh, uh they weren't uh students of uh, uh the philosophers except uh, calvin was uh, uh a classicist uh, calvin uh, did read the uh, philosophers and uh to a large extent he liked uh, uh, the work of Plato, but uh, he thought that the philosophers in general were were uh, of uh, very little value compared to the Gospel, compared to uh, what they learned from God's Word, and of course the need of the Church, the need of the world uh, in their time, uh, was not uh, to to... Had better scholarship on Plato and Aristotle, but it was to, uh, uh, to uh, hear clearly the gospel of God's grace as it came in uh, through the scriptures. So Calvin's work is, is primarily a Bible interpretation. He wrote uh, many volumes of, uh, of commentaries, many volumes of uh, sermons that he preached on different texts, and uh although he was a he was a classical scholar and he could have uh, written some interesting uh monographs on plato's uh uh doctrines, he chose not to do that for the most part and uh, chose to uh focus on uh, issues that come right out of the scriptures and uh, out of the controversies that were uh, uh had arisen in that time between Protestants and Roman Catholics.
1: Yes, well, uh, that, that's a good lead-in because I've been told before, Dr. Frame, that uh, Calvin, particularly his commentaries, and I was curious your thought on this, are a little more timeless than Luther's. Uh, I remember one of my church history profs saying that during, uh, during a seminary class. Uh, his argument was that Luther's um, comments, uh, his argument, were, are very entertaining often, uh, but were a little more targeted to the... The particular needs of his day, where he said he could pick up a Calvin commentary on John today, and it would be really as valuable to him as any uh, D.A. Carson's commentary on John, where where Luther's tended to be a little more um, uh, targeted to his specific time. And, and uh, I mean, would you say that trend is true? Would you would you affirm that perception?
3: Well, I think so. Uh... Uh, Luther, of course, was uh, always preoccupied with his own story, his own uh, uh, wrestling uh, with his sins, and trying to gain the assurance of God's forgiveness. And uh, so that always—that's uh, never too far removed from Luther's writings. Uh, but Calvin, and I, I do make this a point in the book, uh, Calvin basically takes. Uh, Luther's uh, concern about the assurance of salvation, and uh, uh, of course Luther's uh, final confidence that uh, we we gain our assurance because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ and because of his uh, uh, forgiveness uh, by uh, uh, imputing his righteousness to us. And Calvin believed that just as uh, Luther did, but Calvin used that insight to uh, rethink the whole body of Christian theology, yes. I, and uh, I think there's a parallel here to the relationship between uh, Athanasius and Augustine. That uh, uh, Athanasius was a man who was preoccupied with a current controversy, whereas Augustine sort of rethought the whole uh, body of Christian doctrine uh, in the light of the doctrine of the Trinity. So uh, uh, Luther was... Uh, a man who was caught up in the uh, uh, immediacies of his story, but uh, uh, Calvin uh, rethought the whole uh, corpus of Christian doctrine based on uh, the recovery of the doctrine of justification by uh, grace through faith alone. And so Calvin uh, wrote one of the first systematic theologies, the Institutes of the Christian Religion, in which he uh, uh, discusses uh, uh, a whole range of, uh, Christian doctrines, the whole, uh, Christian worldview, so to speak. And, uh, uh he, uh, uh develops, uh, uh, he speaks on any kind of subject, whether it was currently, uh, being debated and, uh, attacked or, or, whether it wasn't. And, uh, therefore I, I kind of feel that, uh, Although Luther is more fun to read than Calvin, <laughs> yeah. uh, Calvin is, is more uh, helpful to me in the 21st century uh, as I try to uh, uh, find uh, uh, truths from Scripture that are that are uh, helpful uh, in my own time and not, not just in the uh, 16th century.
1: Yes, and it's obvious, Dr. Fram, anyone that's read you, uh, and I think you've been very upfront, how personally indebted you are to calvin uh what what would you say is his greatest contribution to christian theology christian thought
3: well it's hard to say because he was such a global thinker Mm -hmm. since he thought about so many things but to me uh what's especially interesting about calvin is that he starts the institutes not the the way typical systematic theologies begin. Usually systematic theologies begin by uh, uh, talking about uh, uh, God's existence and God's attributes and and so on and so forth. But uh, what Calvin does is he starts by talking about the knowledge of God. How do we get knowledge of God? And, of course, uh, uh, his answer is not... Uh, we we get knowledge of God through through this proof and that proof and uh, the way Thomas Aquinas did, but mm-hmm. uh, uh, he said we come to know God through uh, uh, through first of all through his revelation everywhere through his natural revelation which extends to ourselves because we're made in the image of God, but then he says the reason why. Uh, we're ignorant of god is is not because there's there's uh, a scarcity of information but uh, uh, we're ignorant of God because of our sin and uh because uh, we we repress the truth and unrighteousness he follows Paul's argument there in Romans one and then uh, uh of course uh, the only way uh to uh, gain a clear knowledge of God again is by uh, turning uh, away repenting from our sins and and receiving God's grace and so the gospel of grace is there right from the beginning even in the uh, talking about uh, epistemology to use the philosophical term mm-hmm. uh, talking about the way we uh, come to know God and uh, that that uh, part of the Institute's has been a tremendous, Influence on me. The first book that I published was called The Doctrine of the Knowledge of God, and it was trying to put uh, some of those insights into uh, more contemporary terms. Yes,
1: yes.
2: I'm glad you mentioned that book. I was going to bring it up. We are discussing presently your history of Western philosophy and theology. But since we're talking about Calvin, I was reminded of two of your volumes, The Doctrine of God and The Doctrine of the Knowledge of God. And for the hearers, I'll just say they are wonderful, wonderful volumes. I'd encourage you to get them, eat yes, them up, chew them up. I really love them. I love, Dr. Frame, how uh, uh, how fair you are in those volumes, fair to various viewpoints. And I love how... Um, logical and rational you are i think that's one of your hallmarks you really are yes yes you know that um yeah. well, but, <laughs> thank you. but i'm wondering uh to what extent would you say you were influenced by calvin in developing your doctrine of the knowledge of god
3: hmm. well i think that uh in that first book uh doctor of the knowledge of god i i uh, was you know tracking calvin to a large extent i uh i had uh Made use of a lot of the teaching that I'd received at Westminster Seminary, and of course, uh, uh, particularly my training under Cornelius Van Til. Yes. Uh, Van Til saw his work as being uh, very much a uh, uh, an application of Calvin's uh, uh, thinking about uh, epistemology and philosophy and God's uh, sovereignty and so on for our. Uh, time, and uh, that uh, resonated to me a lot. Now, for the most part, I'm not uh, deeply influenced by a, uh, historical theology. I usually try, as in my systematic theology, which was published a few years ago, I usually try to focus on the Bible more than uh, focusing on the people like Calvin, who have studied the Bible, but uh uh, I, I certainly cannot deny that uh, uh, these great teachers that God has raised up uh, have had a tremendous influence on me. I, I have not uh, uh, been—you uh, uh, you shouldn't read my stuff and say, well, those are Frames' original ideas. Usually they come from somebody else, so and mm-hmm. they seem to be— uh, uh, just, just mine. It's mainly because I forgot to acknowledge where they actually came from.
1: Uh, Doctor Frame, you just summarized Steve's entire preaching ministry. Uh, uh, Steve has a gift. He has a gift of plagiarism. No, I'm kidding, listeners. I am kidding. Steve works hard on his sermons. Just a quick little bit of humor but there,
2: there aren't enough pictures in my sermon <laughs> <laughs> so uh jumping you way down in Greg's time sermons let's, then yeah, yeah right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's go down to the 1700s big leap here and come oh, yeah. to the the person of jonathan edwards giant on american soil and uh i think you deal with this subject in your history of western philosophy and theology some of what edwards wrote seems to border on pantheism at yes least. and was- some pantheists might even claim him as their champion would you comment on that did he fall into pantheism or did he get pretty dangerously close to it
3: well in edward's uh, early writings which uh, are more philosophical of course for most of edward's life he was a preacher and uh, a dogmatician rather than a philosopher but uh, he did uh Uh, writes some philosophy early in his uh, uh, life. And uh, some of that, you know, he's trying very hard to uh, uh, emphasize the sovereignty of God. He's very uh, concerned to to say that whatever happens uh, is really God acting, it's really God that's making things happen, and that's what we call uh, concurrence in the doctrine Mm of providence. And, uh, that, but there are times where it almost, uh, seems to be, uh, uh, saying that, uh, you know, everything that we see, everything that we hear, everything that we do, well, it's really God, uh, seeing and hearing and doing, and, mm-hmm. and so it becomes difficult to distinguish what he's doing from, from pantheism. But of course, you know, I mean, uh, when I was in high school, I read, uh, Jonathan Edwards' sermon "Sinners in the in the hands of an angry God" that seems to be the sermon that most of the secular high schools like their students to read, <laughs> yes. and uh, a powerful sermon, and the imagery is devastating. But uh, you you can't uh, imagine that uh, uh, anybody could write that sermon and not recognize that there's a vast difference between mm. God and the sinner, and mm. uh, so uh I think uh, that uh, kind of verging on pantheism was a kind of youthful indiscretion, and uh what the. Uh, Edwards was uh, really uh, up to as more clear in his later life and his sermons and his doctrine of uh, uh, of uh, freedom of the will and so on and so forth. Well,
2: I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm comforted in a strange way. I thought you were going to say that when you were in high school, you read through the works of Jonathan Edwards.
3: Yeah.
1: I, was, I was going to sigh. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. no, Dr. Frame didn't do that to
1: his freshman year of college. Uh, uh.
2: Yeah.
0: Oh, Dr. Frame, we want to thank you so much for joining us. Um, we are winding down on wow. that hour, Mark. Um, it's been so great. We also want to let our listeners know that we want to give away one of your um, books, the current one that we are talking about, A History of Western Philosophy and Theology. Um, and we want to do something similar to what we did for our previous contest. Um, this time we want to do it with iTunes. So if you, um, want to recommend to friends or family who listen to this podcast to go online, write an iTunes review for us, and then contact us, letting us know that they wrote it on your behalf, um, that, that you are getting your check mark from them. Um, we're going to let this run until, uh, what do you think, Greg? December?
1: Yeah, yeah, I'd say December 1st.
0: Okay, December 1st, we will announce our uh, our winner, um, and we will send you off a copy of Dr. Jonathan Frame's book, A History of Western um, Philosophy and Theology. Um, so thank you again so much for joining us. It's been so great. Yes.
1: Yes, yes. Thank you so much, Dr. Frame. And uh, just to say, this book, uh, I-, I think if you could see it sitting here on our table, uh, not you, Dr. Frame, you know the book quite well since you wrote it, but our listeners Uh, We Scratch the Surface of the Surface. Uh, This book is deep. It's helpful. Uh, The way it's annotated and outlined, as, uh, again, the iTunes lectures, uh, it's a really excellently done book, Dr. Frame. And just, again, thank you for serving the Church in writing it.
3: Well, you're very welcome, and uh, I trust that you'll let me know when this uh, discussion is posted so I can let my friends know about it.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. We're going to go ahead and sign off now, gentlemen. We just rocked the Caspa
1: philosophically.
3: These go to eleven.